Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. I've got some stories to tell you. Each one of these is an individual account. After waking at 1 a.m. to use the bathroom, I settled back in our bed and was nearly asleep when I felt someone sit on the edge of the bed next to me. My eyes flew open and I was unable to speak or move my arms. I kicked my husband awake and he held me until I was calm once again. I'm Megan. I'm 11 years old. My mom and I stayed in this room, and we both watched her hairbrush fly off the desk when no one was near it. During the night, I was awakened by a bell. Not like a church bell or a small tinkling bell, but more like the sound of a bell at a store counter. The next day, I woke up to the desk chair across the room and pushed against the wall. My wife and I turned the thermostat to 70 degrees before falling asleep. We both awoke in the middle of the night to find the room blazing hot. We threw off the covers and went back to sleep. A few hours later, at 4 a.m., I woke to find a small, blue-eyed, blonde-haired child staring at me from my side of the bed. He disappeared, and a few seconds later, I heard a small child's voice speaking from my wife's side of the bed. I woke up in the middle of the night to see the bathroom light on. I like to sleep in darkness. So I got out of bed, walked across the room, and turned the light off. After getting back in bed, I rolled over to see the light was on again. This time, I stood up, and as I walked over, I said, I'm trying to sleep. Leave the light off, please. I went back to bed and then heard the soft click of what sounded like my door opening and closing, as though someone left because I clearly wasn't much fun. That last story was mine, by the way. And every one of these stories was taken from the bedside journals kept at the Belvoir Winery and Inn in Liberty, Missouri. A haunted winery, you ask? Well, when it's a former orphanage next door to a former nursing home, hospital, cemetery, and morgue, that ups the ante on whether your winery is haunted. So let's head to the Oddfellows Complex. I'm Amy Bruni, and welcome to Haunted Road. Visit the sick, relieve the distressed, bury the dead, and educate the orphan. 
That was the official purpose of the Independent Order of the Oddfellows, which was founded by Thomas Wildey of Baltimore in 1819. The IOOF stemmed from the 18th century Oddfellows of English creation. Being a fraternal order, Oddfellowship is also known for their mysterious and secretive rituals, including rites of initiation, a secret grip, and secret passwords. The officers and members of the lodge wear regalia during closed ritual meetings. Most famously, each lodge has an actual skeleton named George used to symbolize members' mortality. The fraternal order first came to Missouri in 1835, and by the end of the century, they built the Oddfellows home, a 240-acre complex. It was a form of health and life insurance, and as long as members had a good record, they could depend on the Oddfellows for help. The complex had its own farm and expected those who could to work. It also eventually had its own hospital, an orphanage, school, nursing home, and cemetery. 1887 was a great year for Clay County. Called the Great Boom, the community benefited from the influx of real estate investment and construction. That year, the Winter Hotel was built, but the plans didn't stop with it. In 1888, the land was plotted to be the home of Reed Springs, a complex intended to take advantage of nearby springs thought to be healing waters. But by 1895, the plans hadn't borne much fruit besides the hotel, and the owner's finances were struggling. In the midst of the healing water's interest in America, they renamed the hotel the Reed Springs Hotel in an attempt to attract more visitors. One of those visitors was a young fellow who later became the grandmaster of the Oddfellows, Dr. F.H. Matthews. In poor health, he had gone to Reed Springs Hotel for its healing waters. His health restored, he married a young Liberty woman and remained in Liberty to practice medicine. He later was physician at the Oddfellows' home for 23 years. In 1897, the real estate boom ended, but the Oddfellows had purchased the hotel in Acreage. In February of 1900, the former Reed Springs Hotel was then being used as an Oddfellows' home. And in an attempt to unthaw frozen pipes, the building caught fire and burned to the ground. There were allegedly 300 residents on the property at the time, but miraculously, all escaped. Although the fire set the Oddfellows back money and labor, they took control of nearly 250 acres of farmland. Adults and children, aided by the Oddfellows, worked this land and more or less made the home self-sustaining. What stands now as the Oddfellows District was constructed between 1900 and 1935. The establishment of statewide homes as the Missouri Oddfellows in Liberty was viewed as a form of health and life insurance. As long as members were in good standing, they could count on the Oddfellows taking care of them or their family if misfortune should arise. It seemed like a bold and noble purpose, except eventually, the Oddfellows Home District became outdated and the conditions people were kept in deteriorated. Originally, the home was intended to represent modernity, cleanliness, and caretaking until social programs took over in the 1930s. Now a little history on the buildings at the Oddfellows home. The administration building was originally built in 1900 to house all the inmates, employees, and functions of the complex. Now when I say inmate, I'm using an old school term to refer to the then current residents. The original school building, now gone and replaced by the modern nursing home in 1955, was built in 1904. After that, the rooms in the administration building were reduced in size to function as residences for elderly folks. 
Through 1907 and the following year, the old folks' home was built. In 1923, the old hospital was added to the grounds. By the time it arrived, there had been a need for its singular purpose since 1905. Because the Grand Lodge made it impossible for the home to reject an applicant based on a physical disability, many residents required hospital care beyond that provided by the staff nurse and doctor. The hospital was the only medical facility in Liberty for quite some time and even had its own laboratory. But over time, it too became outdated, as the halls and doorways were not wide enough for movement of hospital beds and equipment. As for residents, the early years were marked by a greater number of children versus adults. Around the time of the Great Depression, though, adults began to outnumber the children. But along with the Depression, national efforts to start up social welfare programs marked the beginning of the end for the home, at least as it served the Odd Fellows. Also during the Depression, a large number of non-orphan children were admitted. Their families were unable to care for them. In addition to education, activities for the children included music, literature, radios, religious services, holiday parties, and movie nights. To this day, people who spent time at the orphanage come back to visit and most recall having fond memories there. This may explain why most every encounter with the ghosts of children here involves playful activity and laughter. Now, as in life, so too in death did the Oddfellows aid their members. A cemetery plot, headstone, and burial were yet another benefit provided to their members. There is an on-site cemetery at the complex. Originally, it began its tenure near the admin building, but was moved to higher ground in 1911. The cemetery contains the remains of nearly 600 people. Over the decades the Oddfellows home was in operation, it is estimated as many as 10,000 people died there. While many were expected as people were taken care of in their later years, it's thought many were due to the lack of adequate medical facilities in the early years and then outdated facilities in its later years. There are also newspaper records of at least a few suicides and accidents, and a number of children are buried in the cemetery, most likely victims of pneumonia or tuberculosis, and with no family or means to be buried elsewhere. In 1993, the Oddfellows sold the property to the current owners. At that time, every building had long been closed and out of commission other than the nursing home, which still had a few remaining residents. Eventually, that too was shuttered, and the new owners then turned the campus into a winery. The district now totals 36 acres. It is a dark, looming set of buildings. The original orphanage is now operating as the inn and winery, and as fate would have it, is a popular wedding venue. Also in this building is a large collection of antique Oddfellows artifacts, including masks, robes, and of course their very own George. This skeleton dates back to the 1880s and belonged to an Oddfellow who bequeathed his remains first to science and then to the IOOF for ritual use. Now, in addition to educating folks on the history of the Oddfellows, he's a popular stop for selfies. Just next door sits the dormant and quiet nursing home, basement morgue still included, and beyond that, the old folks' home and hospital. All these buildings are wide open to the elements, as nature is slowly taking over in some places, but it's not hard to imagine what the complex looked like in its heyday. One thing is for sure, the Oddfellows complex has been rumored to be haunted for decades, Many locals have stories of being dared to enter the buildings in their teenaged years and having strange encounters. 
Former staff of the nursing home, which remained open long after the other buildings had closed, report strange going-ons, especially on the night shift. And of course, the current employees have no shortage of tales to tell visitors and guests. I should add, the place is now patrolled by 24-7 security, so no more breaking and entering, please. Even Jesse Limekuller, who I should explain as a dear friend and CEO of the winery, his wife Melissa's father is the one who originally took on the task of buying the complex, doesn't shy from telling his ghost stories. We'll be interviewing him in a bit, but he has seen the apparition of a small child, a woman, and a shadowed silhouette. He's also personally told me numerous stories of voices and footsteps in the building when he has been all alone. It's not unusual for guests to report footsteps or to hear the pianos playing on their own, have lights turn on and off, or see doors slam. So now that you're an expert on all things Oddfellows Home, let's have a chat with Jesse. I actually met Jesse and his wife Melissa when we filmed Ghost Hunters at the home so many years ago, and we hit it off immediately. I mean, of course we did. A family who loves to travel and owns a haunted winery. Let's just say we were fast friends. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Of course. So can you kind of explain how you came into owning and running a haunted winery and inn? Sure, yeah. So my wife's parents, they originally acquired the property directly from the Oddfellows. The Oddfellows had had the property for about 100 years, and uh, we acquired it in 1993. My uh, in-law's dream was to turn the winery property which it was actually just a nursing home and uh, at that time, they wanted to turn the property into a winery and then a bed and breakfast as well. And so we started making, making those changes and renovating just to make the winery. And then eventually we fulfilled what they wanted. And in about the last five years, we completed the inn as well. And now they have it all. Mm. So can you just kind of explain who the Oddfellows were? 
Yeah, so the Odd Fellows is a fraternal order and charitable order, uh, much like the Masons, Shriners, Knights of Columbus, those type of groups. The lodges would be located in each individual city. Um, they would be everywhere, the height of the organization, which was in the 30s and the 40s. And so they would have the meetings in those lodges, and they would also hold the rituals in those lodges. And the ritual was based on Old and New Testament teachings, mainly the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then in addition, they would also have what they called Oddfellows homes, and they were one or two in each state. And their purpose was strictly charitable. They were looking to take care of the orphans, take care of the poor, house uh, retired people, and then also in some cases they would have a hospital there as well. Okay, so were these buildings, were they open to just members of the Oddfellows, or were these places that anyone in the community could make use of? So a mixture of both. They uh, had the orphanage, which could be open to the public, and they were just there to take care of anybody who needed help in that regard. Usually it wasn't necessarily that the family was giving up the orphan. It was more a situation where, for example, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, they couldn't always feed their family members, all of them in some cases. And so they would drop off usually the younger members of the family. The older families they would keep on the farm because they were able to work. Whereas the younger kids, they would take them to these orphanages where they'd be fed and taken care of and clothed. And then eventually when the family got back on their feet, they would come back and get the orphans, hopefully. I didn't, I was not aware of that. I, I just, I feel like everybody assumes orphans means no parents or no family. Yeah. Yeah. In some cases, I mean, and, and it was kind of weird too, because uh, in the case of the orphanage, the families would actually come visit them periodically in many cases. Um, and so we have a lot of stories where, for example, a family might have six kids and three of them were at the orphanage and then three of them were at home working on the farm on the property. And every two to three weeks, the family would usually come on a Sunday after church. They would come and visit the other kids. They would hang out. They would have a picnic, just do family things like everything was normal. And then at the end of the afternoon, the family would head back with the older kids back to the farm. And then the younger kids would be left there for another two to three weeks before they saw their family again. It's it's so foreign to what we think about now, you know, as, as, as how things run. But at the time, that was that was very normal. That was just a way that the uh, private organizations helped people. Um, but it was just a way of life. And that was how they survived during that time. So why Liberty? Like I know when I when I get to the the winery, when you arrive, it's really set away from everything. <laughs> you know, is there a reason why they picked Liberty in particular? So generally speaking, they obviously turn to try to be relatively close to bigger cities, which obviously Kansas City is only about a 15-minute drive, 20-minute drive tops. So what they would try to do is get towards those big population centers where there was the most need. In the case of Liberty, Liberty actually originally was going to house a Mason's home there. And what happened was is that deal fell through. And so then the city of Liberty offered the Oddfellows $17,000 in, that would have been 1895, which is a lot of money back then, but they offered that money to them and said, hey, will you come and take what the building, which was basically a bankrupt hotel. And so they had this large hotel on the edge of their town and they wanted to do something with it. So they offered them this money to come in and, and set something up. And that's how they came to be at the property. It was also really close to the river and a major road, which was nice as well. So that's originally how they came to that property. 
Did it ever have any connection to the Winter Hotel or the Reed Springs Hotel or anything like that? Yes. So that was the hotel that I just spoke of that was bankrupt. So it originally, the original building was a wood structure on the site and it was built in 1880. It was called the Winter Hotel initially. um, And that was the person that actually built it. And then later it became the Reed Springs Hotel as well. But there was actually a full plan for the entire property. Originally, it was supposed to be a community with lots of houses and businesses. And there was actually a horse racing track out in front of the property that they did actually build and was used for a period of time. But all that was supposed to happen, this giant community just outside of Liberty. And then basically they built the hotel. It did all right for about a decade. And then there was a real estate crash early in the 1890s. And the, Mr. Winter, who owned the place, he basically lost all his properties. And so that's how it, it became a bankrupt hotel and became for sale. And that's how the Odd Fellows ended up with it. I see. Now, did that building burn down or is that one of the structures that's still there? Uh, correct. So the Odd Fellows got the property with the original hotel in 1895 and turned that into an orphanage. And then on Valentine's Day, 1900, in that building, the cook who was there, they had a frozen pipe and he wasn't able to do what he needed to do to, to cook the meals. And so he actually went down in the basement and was using a blowtorch to heat the pipe. And part of the blowtorch evidently caught part of that wood section on fire. He didn't know it initially. That's what happened. And of course, it went up in flames in a hurry because it was a wood structure. And that's actually one of the main reasons that the current building is built with you know, 18-inch brick walls because the Oddfellows did not want that to happen again. And so they built one of the most fire-resistant structures in the United States at that time because they didn't want to have another wood structure that might go up again. Yeah, so were the other buildings present when that orphanage building was rebuilt? The orphanage building was the original building. It was built in 1900. That's also the current winery building. And then the second building that was built was the schoolhouse next door. It was built in 1902. Then the old folks' home was built in 1905. And then finally, the medical hospital at the far end, it was built in the early 20s. Ah, okay. I just, I noticed like when you, when you go there, the orphanage, which is now the winery is just, it is in, obviously it's in great shape because you guys did a lot of renovating on it and things, but I feel like that building has just kind of stood the test of time better than some of the others because the other ones are, they're just wide open to the elements and they, it's so surreal because you, you roll up there and you see this big, you know, structure and then you see these other structures around it that are covered in vines and are wide open and just, it looks like it should be haunted. And you would never expect to walk into the winery building and find this like beautifully restored, you know, obviously the winery and the bar and then upstairs, this beautiful inn. I don't know. I always feel like it's just such a contrast between that building and the other buildings and how they have kind of fared over the years. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lesson obviously, and kind of choose your poison as far as, you know, when you're dealing with these properties, you know, we've spent a few million on the building that we do have, you know, but it literally, if we want to do all the buildings, it literally costs like tens of millions of dollars. And a lot of people are uh, wonder, you know, well, why don't you restore them all? It's like, well, it costs a lot of money to make, to make history happen in those cases. And so, you know, as much as we'd like to just blow right through them and do them all, you kind of have to stagger it so that you able to afford it and not go, you know, like Mr. Winter, go bankrupt in the process. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, let's talk about just, you know, why it's haunted. 
Over the years throughout those buildings, how many people do you think passed away uh, on that property? So the Oddfellows have just over 10,000 recorded deaths on site. Most of those are obviously in the nursing home, the old folks home and the hospital. You know, I mean, the hospital for the first half of the last century, it wasn't always a place that you were cured. Sometimes it, in some cases, it was a place where you were just brought to be comfortable. You know, they didn't have things like antibiotics and stuff like that for a long period of time. And so stuff that, you know, we cure easily, they, it wasn't cured easily back then. And then in addition, there were lots of residents. I mean, between the nursing home and the old folks home, there's about... 200 care rooms in those two buildings. So you can imagine how many people were going in and out. And it wasn't a situation where they had a lot of long-term residents necessarily. They were coming in and out relatively quickly. And in fact, we have the cemetery on site, which has about 600 graves. And it's easy to see too, if you go up there, that most of the graves that are up there, I think there's only about five orphans or something like that. Most of the graves up there are people who lived into their 80s and 90s. And we don't always think about that. Because so many times, you, you know, they tell people, oh, well, they didn't live as long back then. But there was a lot of people that did still live that long. And so a lot of those people up there have lived a long life and, and passed away on the property. Yeah. And it sounds like when it was built, it was it was state of the art. But then at some point, it kind of started falling behind. You know, was there kind of a shift or a turn as far as the conditions there at some point? Yeah, the first shift, uh, the major shift that happened was, um, you know, when you have federal government takes over things like welfare and child protective services. For many years, these kind of places provided those kind of services. And so once that that change took place and the federal government started covering some of those kind of things, there was no need for those things there. As a result, there was a situation where something that was a stream of revenue that was providing maintenance in a lot of cases suddenly wasn't there anymore. And you're left basically with a nursing home at that point. And while, you know, theoretically you could do that, it's much more difficult to run that kind of a property with that size where it's only a nursing home. In a lot of cases, too, the odd fellows, they would pay a stipend throughout their uh, life as an odd fellow. And then if they paid for a certain number of years, they would get free retirement at the site. Uh, while that was a great idea in principle, what happened was as you go along, they didn't get as many new members coming in. And so as a result, there was less of a revenue stream coming in to support all these people being taken care of at the nursing home. And as a result, you know, then they suddenly had these behemoth properties with not enough revenue coming in to support them. And so it seems like probably the the closures were sort of staggered. So then, like you said before, by the time um, your wife's family purchased that, it was just the nursing home in operation, correct? Yeah, correct. There was only one building in operation at that time. And I think there was only about 15 residents there. So there's not very many. And in fact, the the building where the winery is, it was actually closed for, no, I'd say about five to eight years before we even got it as well. So it was already in somewhat of a state of decay. And we re- we gutted it and, and restarted from the studs, basically. Hmm. So why why do you think, why do you think it's haunted? Um, I think it's a mixture of things. Um, in the winery building, I don't think, I don't feel like it's a situation where it's a threatening thing in any way. It's more playful usually, which makes sense. I mean, there's mostly kids there. In some cases, I mean, most of the residents that were there that we've met, uh, who used to be orphans, they said it was actually a nice place to stay. They were well taken care of. And uh, they didn't really have any issues with staying there, other than the fact they would have rather been home with their families, obviously. But 
you know, I think I think some of them actually had some good times with some good friends there and, and still enjoy it. And there were a few that passed away there. I mean, it does happen. As far as the other buildings, you know, it's more old age and those kind of things. A lot of those buildings, it's more of a vibe like they don't want you there. It's kind of like grumpy old people kind of thing where you, you don't feel welcome there necessarily just because they'd rather not have you there. It's one of those things where I don't know that those people necessarily enjoyed their stay as much as maybe the orphans did. So I, I think that's why there's a totally different vibe there. And of course, just the simple fact that so many people passed away there. We've come across a few other situations. There's a one week in the mid 30s, the summer where they had like seven residents pass away from a heat wave. It just literally got up to like 109 degrees for several days in a row. And those residents were in the building and they literally just, you know, overheated to death. And there, there was a suicide on site, one that we know of, um, some other situations. But, you know, there's plenty of life events that happened in those buildings. So I don't think it's, it should be all that surprising. What would you say is the most common uh, occurrences that people report either in the inn and winery or just in the, the buildings? Um, I think the two main things are uh, voices. It seems like there's a lot of situations where you feel like you'll be in the building all alone and you'll hear conversations down the hallways. It'll be more than one person. As you walk toward, it just kind of goes away. The other thing that's very prevalent is footsteps in the other buildings. A lot of times you can actually hear them in some cases. It's kind of weird because even though all the debris that's on the floor wasn't there at the time those people were there in most cases, you can actually hear the floor. You can hear the crunching. You can hear the noises, which is kind of unique. I, I, I don't know if that's common or not, but I, I feel like that's something that doesn't always happen. I feel like sometimes you'll have a normal footstep despite, despite the fact that there's kind of debris on the floor that should be making a different sound. Mm. It's such an interesting um, influx of visitors that you have because, you know, having visited many times, you have people who are definitely there just to kind of enjoy the winery and, and the scenery because it's beautiful, you know, the land and everything and the views and then you definitely have the people that are there just to look for ghosts. <laughs> and how is that received in the community? Um, you know, I think it's something they've grown accustomed to even before we opened the property. You know, there were rumors of paranormal activity. I can say we didn't really experience that much before, um, you know, we were out there more often, which would have been around the 2008, somewhere in that range. We didn't really experience that much out there, to be honest with you. Once we were out there more often, I think it, became more obvious. And it was a situation where, you know, we couldn't really hide from it. There was so much talk in the community. In a lot of cases, it's an institution that a lot of people in the community were involved in. I mean, people come in, you know, when they're tasting wine and things like that, and they'll tell stories about, you know, when I was a kid 50 years ago, I used to come out and sing for the old folks home for caroling, you know, or the Boy Scouts used to paint some kind of pesticide on the bottom three feet of all the trees. So you'd have painted trees throughout the property or all those kind of things. And all those people came out. And so it's been such an integral part of the community for so long. I think at this point, people are just glad that they're able to come visit it again and, and see the history and all that kind of stuff. And, and in a lot of cases, we have people who come multiple times and they keep bringing different people. And in some cases, they're just, you know, they'll go out and do their own tour and tell the history and we don't even have to do the work for them. That is nice to have. It is interesting because so many times when we investigate places like that, you know, we don't ever really get to talk to people who truly spent time there. But that is one difference there that it was such a huge part of the community for so long. Like you have generations of people who 
either knew someone who spent time there or who worked there. Because I know when we were filming Kindred, we kind of put a call out at the last minute because we wanted to kind of do this experiment and, and bring out people who had some sort of attachment to the building. And we got a huge response. Like it was not hard to find people who had, you know, actually spent time in those walls when it was functioning. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, real talk, how many times have your in-guests left in the middle of the night? We actually we actually keep a running count, and the current count is 17 rooms have left in the middle of the night so far. So, And that's in four years' time. So, you know, about every two to three months, we get somebody who just flat out heads out the building, is done for the night, says, I don't want to stay here. There are other nights or other situations where we do have you know, they get freaked out, but maybe they don't leave. We had one where there was a couple that was staying and um, they woke up in the middle of the night and had voices. And one of the people felt somebody sit down on the bed next to where they were sleeping. They said they were done and they went out to the car and the spouse was like, uh -uh, I'm all right with that. And so the, the spouse actually stayed in the room while the other uh, person went out and slept in the car for the last four hours. Oh my goodness. They're lucky their marriage survived that. <laughs> um, you know, and it's funny because I started uh, I started this podcast kind of reading off some experiences because you have journals in every room for people to, you know, just, you know, write their experiences down, which is really great because we always recommend that to people when they're researching their hauntings is to keep kind of a running log. And so you have people doing that for you. But yeah, one of them actually was an experience just like that. A lot of people seem to feel someone sitting down on their beds. You know, I know me personally, I always stay in the the bridal suite, <laughs> of course, <laughs> and that uh, I, I've had the bathroom light turn on and off in there multiple times. And I've also had the door open and close in there. And I've heard so many sounds like I now when I stay there, I'm not frightened in the slightest, but I do usually wear earplugs or have a fan going so I don't have to hear all the, the sounds that are happening around me because I swear I've heard footsteps there a few times, too. Yeah, they have. Um, there was uh, one couple that was in there that, um, as you know, our rooms are next to each other. Our standard rooms are next to each other. And so they were staying in room nine, which is right next to room seven. And in the morning they came out and I said hi and greeted them and asked, asked them how their night was. And they said, well, it was fine until their neighbors started making a bunch of noise. I said, oh, I said, that's terrible. What happened? And so they talked about it. I think it was like four in the morning. They heard footsteps next door and a bunch of talking and they were annoyed. And I even got the impression that maybe they were going to ask for some money back or something like that because they were so frustrated with the situation. And I said, well, let me check. And so I went over to the computer and pulled it up. There was nobody staying in room seven the entire night. We didn't have a key out for that. And I said, I, I don't have anybody in that room. I said, there's literally nobody there. And, and I said, feel free to take a peek. And they came around and looked and realized that there was nobody in that room. And they actually apologized to me on the spot and said, I am so sorry. Apparently we got what we were looking for and we just didn't know it. I think that hotels sometimes worry about having that reputation. And I'm constantly explaining to them that, that it's very rare that that is going to stop from someone from staying in a hotel. It might make them leave in the middle of the night, but even that's pretty rare. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. We have, generally speaking, it's been a very positive experience as far as that goes. Now, I feel as though the morgue to me and the nursing home, and then I would say probably out, I, I can't even pick which spot is the most active, paranormally speaking, to me. Um, I do know the morgue, 
has notoriously been a spot where I, I've had a, a, a male voice down there talk to me. I've had something grab my arm down there. Chip Coffee famously had his arm grabbed in the morgue. What spot do you think has kind of the most extreme activity? Um, I would say the morgue as well, actually. And some of it I would attribute to when I go down there, I just don't feel comfortable in any way, shape or form. I mean, it's a situation where it's cold, it's clammy. There's literally like doors all around you. You know, there's kind of that central area where there's, you know, everywhere you look, there's a door (laughs) staring at you, except it's total darkness. You know, even one of the doors that has a nurse's locker room where, you know, there's still clothes in there from 40 years ago and they left there like just happened yesterday almost. And, you know, all that just kind of, there's a big vibe down there and you can just feel it. it almost feels like a buzz. I just don't, I don't like it that much. I mean, I'm happy to go in most of the areas and I'll go into the morgue as well, but you know, I won't go down there unless I have. Yeah. There's times where we're doing events there or group investigations and, you know, I've had to move from like point A to point B by myself. And, you know, I have this thing I do when I'm in a, a really haunted space and I'm nervous, which I, I get nervous. I can't help it. Especially when you've been grabbed in the dark by something you can't see. But I tend to whistle or hum because I feel like nothing bad can happen. <laughs> and so if I'm whistling or humming in a cheerful way, because it's quicker sometimes to go through the morgue to get to the, you know, because sometimes there's people up on that upper level or that door's locked. And so whenever I have to do that, I'm like humming and whistling and rushing through there as quick as I can. And that's the one spot that I do that. So, you know, and I think that having investigated there so many times, I do think that there is something to the idea, like we explored on the episode of Kindred we did there, that people start kind of bringing that energy with them and people investigate there so often that certain areas that get that reputation, they almost kind of perpetuate that energy uh, and it stays there. And and the morgue and the nursing home in particular, I think, are perfect examples of that. Yeah, and I get a heavy feeling of, in that in that building as well, I, I'm always looking over my shoulder, I, and it's not a it's not a situation where you're like you know a little freaked out kind of thing. I mean, I've been there for almost three decades now. That seems like forever, but I don't get freaked out easily. It doesn't. It takes a lot for me to get freaked out, but when you're in that building, it just really feels like something's just standing over your shoulder. I mean, it's I, I don't know how else to explain it. That sounds weird and ridiculous, but it's true. I mean, it just totally feels like something's watching you. Yeah. I mean, I I can't even begin to imagine who it could be. There's any number of people it could be. We've, we've done so much digging. We've done so much historical research. We've gotten so many names. We've actually had spirits there identify themselves to us before. We we've had a spirit correct the pronunciation of their name to us before, but whoever that is in the, the nursing home in the morgue, they remain anonymous. They won't tell us really much of anything. And they seem to just kind of exist there and they tend to scare people a lot. Well, I think that that's it for now. Unless there's anything you want anyone to know about investigating there, any activity that happens there, like if there's any message you want to get across to people who plan on visiting, this is a good time to do that. Uh, No, not really. I mean, you know, most people realize it's really tough to investigate the winery for the most part because our tours that we have, they sell out really quickly. You know, hopefully everyone gets the opportunity that wants to eventually. But I mean, it's a it's a wonderful place to visit. It's a wonderful place to learn about a lot of history that you wouldn't normally learn about. 
Um, and I always tell people, you know, paranormal activity is a great way to teach people about history without them necessarily knowing that you're teaching them something. I mean, if we just had buildings and we were telling them about the odd fellows, they wouldn't pay attention. But when we talk about the odd fellows and, and there's paranormal activity behind it, suddenly everybody's very interested in what's going on. So that's a great part of the property and a great part of the learning experience, you know, that people enjoy when they come to the winery. So I think that's fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Everyone, I do encourage you to visit the winery and inn if you're in the area or make a special trip for it because it's worth it. There's so much to see and do nearby as well. And, you know, like I said in the beginning of the interview, Jesse and his family and the winery all have a very special place in my heart. It's a place unlike any other. (laughs) So um, highly recommend, very haunted, lots of great stories, lots of great history. So Jesse, thank you so much. I super appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. I love the evolution of the Oddfellows complex, and I love the acceptance of the owners in embracing their ghosts. But over the years, things have gotten a little darker in certain corners of those crumbling buildings. While I don't think the place is infested with demons or anything, I don't think you can have a space like that, with paranormal investigators going in and out constantly, some terrified, some nervous, some rehashing and discussing every tragedy or death that has happened there, without affecting the energy in the walls. It's something we've seen time and time again with some of these more well-known locations. And while those thoughts are inevitable, it also lends to a valuable lesson. If you believe in the power of positive thought, then you should also entertain the power of negative thought and what that means when you walk the dark halls of an old hospital, thinking about every bad thing that happened there. Let's turn that around, shall we? I'm going to focus on those cozy beds in the inn and, of course, the great wine, though I do recommend traveling with a good pair of earplugs should you stay at the inn. So until next time on Haunted Road, cheers. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.